Today, we're uh, going to continue our series in our, uh, uh, for core values. Last week, Bishop started us off, and we actually have five core values as a church. The reason we're going through these core values is because we feel like there are a few new people here who might not know exactly what type of people that we are. And we chose these core values really specifically. One, we have one for evangelism that Bishop spoke about last week. We have family, we have discipleship, leadership development, and lordship. Today, I have the opportunity and the privilege to speak to us about the family, uh, about the value of family. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 3 this morning. Exodus chapter 3. So if you would, and if you're able, would you stand with me in the reading of the word? Exodus chapter 3, verses 2 through 6. And it says this. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see what a great sight, why the bush is not burned. And when the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. I want to speak about two things while we're together this morning. One, your natural family, and two, your spiritual family. Would you pray with me for a minute? Lord Jesus, this whole time is for you. We're not setting up a man. We're not setting up an organization. We're not setting up groups. We are setting up the king. And we're looking to glorify you. Lord, if you're not glorified in any other place, would you be glorified in this place? And Lord, if you're not glorified in any other heart, would you be glorified in this heart? Father, we love you so much. And more importantly, you love us. Holy Spirit, would you empower us to live, look, and love more like Jesus today than we did yesterday. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You guys can take a seat. Thank you. Family. The core value of family. I've learned that value is determined by what you prioritize and what you sacrifice for. Value is simply determined by what things do you prioritize and what things do you sacrifice for. I love traveling, especially to other countries, because in the time when I travel to all these other countries, if I ever get the opportunity to, or nations or cultures, you get a glimpse to see what that culture, nation, tribe, or country values. You ever been to the Caribbean or something, and then you realize that they value certain things, and they value maybe different things than we do. They have this thing called island time. You know what I'm talking about? Like, like you're supposed to get on a boat that leaves at noon, but it leaves at one for some reason. It's like, oh, we're fine. It's on island time. Or maybe you uh, go to a different country in the Middle East or something like that. And somebody invites you into their home for a meal. 
Here, if somebody invites you in, they're just like, hey, May, I wish you'd hang out sometime. It's a polite, trivial thing. If somebody invites you to their home in the Middle East, they're telling you to come to their home. And it's offensive if you don't. My sister, she's sister-in-law, she's, a, uh, she's naturally from Germany. And when she came to the States, one thing that she noticed is she said, it's really interesting, even when you come here, that you guys have an interesting culture. You guys smile a lot. You'll just say hi and be like, hi, how are you doing? And she's like, why is everyone smiling at me? You realize when you go to different cultures, they value different things. There's actually a Better Life Index poll that polled almost 100,000 people, asking people from various places and countries around the world, what do you value most in your country? They would say things like health or education or safety or community. If you look in South America, many countries in the South America, the majority of them, they value education above everything else. When you look at Africa, you find multiple countries in Africa value health, education, and income with a few valuing safety above everything else. Australia is one of the only developed nations that values work-life balance above everything else. And America. You can probably assume what we value But what this index states it as is the U.S. and over half of Europe, we value above everything else, life satisfaction. We want to be happy. That's what we value is life satisfaction as a country. It's ease and comfort and fun and leisure. Those are the things that we value. And if we value life satisfaction more than anything else, then what is value if not what you prioritize and what you sacrifice for, which makes sense that we sacrifice our mental health, our relationships, our well-being, so that we might have life satisfaction. Here at Grace Covenant Church, I want you to know that we value family. We prioritize it and we sacrifice for it. And not just because we think it's a good idea. We didn't just come up with five cool things that might get people to think we're good people as some mantras and values by which we guide this church. No, we value family because we believe that God values family. And if God didn't value family, then we might not value family. The reason we believe that God values family is because God builds around families. He builds through generations. The first two persons of the Trinity, father and son, God in and of himself is a family. The first institution that God ever created, you look at the Garden of Eden, and as God, before he creates culture and and society and, and laws and rules, he creates Adam and Eve and designs them to be a family. The first thing he tells them to do is go and make a family. You find Jesus' first miracle. Where did he do it? it? Was at a wedding at Cana. The first miraculous thing we ever get Jesus recorded of doing was he did it in a family setting. His mom came to him and said that they don't have enough wine at this wedding. There's only water. He says, come and bring me some water jugs. He blesses them. And all of a sudden, this wine flows at a wedding. I don't think it's a coincidence. The first miracle that Jesus does is at a wedding. He loves family. You even see that the first salvation ever recorded wasn't of a person. It was of a family. Noah In the first few chapters of the scriptures, we find that 
really quickly, humanity went downhill. All of a sudden, it says that every thought of man and woman were evil continually. But then God looks and he sees Noah, and Noah is a righteous man in his generation. But God did not just save Noah. It says that God saves Noah, his wife, his sons, and his sons' wives. God's first salvation is actually the salvation of a family. And if God prioritizes and sacrifices for all these things, don't we think that God might value family? I believe that God loved families back then and he loves families now. And the reason why I think that God loves and values families so much is because I think that families, biblical families, remind God of the Garden of Eden. And if you look in the scriptures, you will find the through line of action and how God is working history to all together, really to get all of us back to Eden. In case you don't know, the whole plan of God is that Eden was perfection relationship with the Father. And all he's doing now is he has been working history and working everything together that his people might be back with him in perfect communion. God is, we're learning something about God in the first couple pages of the scriptures, which is God values family. And the reason I think he does is because when he sees a family, he's reminded of his first best idea. When he sees your biblical family, I think it reminds him of Eden. It reminds him of where we're all going. You see, when we realize in the first couple pages, there's a lot of important information we see about God. We look to Genesis chapter 27 and 28 because this gives a beautiful picture of how much God is invested into family. You see it here, Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, 28. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And listen to this, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Did you know that the first blessing for men was the blessing over family? The first time God ever blessed humanity is that he blessed the family. And so if God saves the family, he blesses the family, he does miracles for the family, he instituted the family, wouldn't it make sense that we could confidently say that God values the family? And if God values the family, then so ought we value the family. God didn't bless the mountains. He didn't bless the, the, the animals. He didn't, he didn't bless the solar system. God blessed the family. He said, I'm going to bless you. Now go be fruitful and multiply. And here's what he does. He doesn't just bless them. He makes a covenant with the family. Some of us are thinking, Pastor, why did you pick Exodus? Why did we read that? What does it have to do with family? Well, listen to this. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That God defines himself as a God of families. That's who he says that he is to us. I'm a God not just of Abraham, not just of Isaac. I'm a God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is what he says. And he engages in a covenant with us. This word covenant is um, maybe misunderstood by some of us because when we hear the word covenant, some of us think contract. 
And contract and covenant are similar in the way that there's both an agreement that two people come into to accomplish a specific purpose, but they are totally different in how they ultimately accomplish that thing. As in a contract is designed that you and I agree to terms and we agree to this so that if you don't do what you said, I'm protected from you. But a covenant doesn't work like that. A covenant is not designed to protect me from you. A covenant is designed to bind me to you. So when we see a covenant and we see a contract, God is not making a contract with you saying, you know what, if you do these things and only these things, we're good because I'm not really sure I trust you all the way and vice versa. We're not making a contract with God that says, if you bless me, then maybe I'll go this way. It is a covenant that says, no matter what, I bind myself to you for a specific purpose. God values family and he makes a covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. He's committed to you, not just through a contract, but through a covenant. Moses in this time, it's the time when um, Israelites are enslaved in Egypt. Moses has gone away. He's ran away at this point in his life. And now he's coming back. He sees this burning bush. And as he sees the burning bush, it's the most um, influential time in his life. And the biggest moment in Israel's history thus far. God sees him. Moses turns to the side and sees the burning bush. And all of a sudden, God says, yes, you're the one that I'm going to use. He calls him to himself and defines himself as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of families. He even then, in verse 15 or 16, he says, and you will go tell the people of Israel that I am the father of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Abraham being the um, inheritor of the promise. He's the one. He's the father of our faith. Isaac being the son of promise. And Jacob being the father of the 12 tribes of Israel, God could have defined himself any way that he wanted to. He could have said Lord, he could have said Savior, he could have said Master, he could have said Jehovah, but God chooses to define himself as the God of families. And I believe that this teaches us something about him because if he identifies himself as the God of families, that teaches us not just who he sees himself as, but who he sees you as. He sees himself as a father, so he sees you as children, his children. If we are his, then he is ours. And not just our Savior, not just our Lord, not just God, but he is our father. Why announce yourself through generations if not to tell us something about how you value family? And we value family because we prioritize family. And we sacrifice for family. But practically, what does that look like? Well, to prioritize family, practically what it means for us is just this. Prioritizing family means that we give our family the best of us, not the rest of us. I'm not going to give my family everything that's left over from the day, from the month, from the week, from the year. I'm going to give them the best of me. And how often is it and how sad is it that oftentimes the people that we love the most, we treat the worst? Have you noticed that? That all of a sudden, like the family and your best friends and the people you've walked with the longest, they don't get the best of you often. 
But you give the best of yourself to your employees. You work tirelessly to make sure that your employees and your employer are amazing. You work so hard and move around your schedule every which way so that you can hang out with your best friends. And you even treat the waiter and the grocery clerk with the kindest smile you've ever given. But as soon as you come home, for some reason, we're impatient, we're unaccommodating, and sometimes we're just mean to our family. And the reason why I believe that we do this often is because sometimes we think things that are a given, we take for granted. You're going to be there anyway, so I don't have to treat you a certain way. And all of a sudden, our families get the rest of us. Meanwhile, we give the best of us to our jobs and to our friends and to our social media and to our, our education. And we give the best of us everywhere else except to our families. And we say, well, I'm working hard for my family. Well, you're working so hard and you're sacrificing your family. We prioritize them. We prioritize them. I'm saying, I'm not going to give you the rest of me. I'm going to give you the best of me. Because when we give the best of us to our families, we value our families. We value our natural families. And we sacrifice for our families. What does that practically mean? For us, sacrificing for our families means that we value family over productivity. I care more about my natural family than I do about being successful. I care about family more than I care about productivity. Here at Grace Covenant Church, we don't want you to sacrifice your family for anything. We want you to prioritize and to sacrifice for your family. If value is determined by what you sacrifice for, we want to encourage you, don't sacrifice your family, sacrifice for your family. Make sure that they are a priority in your life and that you sacrifice for these people. Here, sometimes we just make success the goal. And here's the thing, if you're successful, I'm happy. That's great. I'm really, really happy for you. I'm happy that you made partner, but are you a good mom? I'm really happy that you finally got your PhD, but how are you as a husband? You made it into an Ivy League school. Congratulations. And I'm being sincere. I'm really glad. How are you as a son? How are you as a daughter? Because I'm not going to prioritize everything else. I'm going to prioritize my family. I'm going to sacrifice for my family. I'm going to value my family. And then I'm going to make time for everything else. I'm going to choose that my family gets the best of me, not the rest of me. And I choose that family is far more important than productivity. We value family. There's a question that I was considering as I was studying the action or the, the, the institution of family. And I asked myself the question, or maybe the Lord asked me, is he said, like, who placed you in your family? Not you. Who, who placed you in your family? Not your parents. Your parents placed a baby, maybe, in your family, But that's not what I'm asking. Who placed you in your family? Why weren't you born into a different family? Why were you born into that family? 
Who placed you in your family? I, I believe that Psalm 139 actually gives us the answer to this. Psalm 139 verse 13 says, For you, God, formed my inward parts, and you, God, knitted me together in my mother's womb. Who, who placed you in your family? God placed you in your family. I get a lot of questions about um, purpose as a pastor. People ask me all the time, and I think I've even mentioned this, that there's like this conversation that people constantly have is, what's my purpose? What am I supposed to do? How do I find my purpose? How do I know if this is my purpose? And I actually have some answers for those questions, but Here's the thing, people ask questions about purpose all the time because we feel lost in purpose. We're trying to find a purpose. We're trying to figure out what we are supposed to do. And I really do value those conversations, value those questions. But I don't need to know you to tell you your purpose in one specific area. I might need to have a conversation and tell you some specifics, but in this room, I can tell everybody here what part of your purpose is right now. Part of your purpose is your family. Why? Because your placement in your family is the one thing that you can't take credit for, your family can't take credit for, your boss can't take credit for, your friends can't take credit for. And if you knew without a shadow of a doubt that God placed you somewhere, wouldn't you just understand that there might be purpose in that place? If you knew with 100% certainty that God placed you at that job, wouldn't you think there's purpose in that job? If you knew with 100% certainty that God placed you in that city, wouldn't you think there's purpose in that city? If you knew with 100% certainty that God placed you in that relationship, wouldn't you think there's purpose in that relationship? But for some reason, we know with 100% certainty that God placed us in that family, but we don't think there's purpose in that family? That's the one thing that nobody else can take credit for except for God. Why? Because where God places you, there's purpose there. There's purpose in your family. And God has now a place for you, a purpose for you with the people that you're with. If I'm being honest, I knew that the room would feel like this at this point in the message. Because if we're being honest... We question God at that point. God, why, yeah, why did you place me in that family? Or we get, and we can be complex. God, why didn't you place me in a family? Because if we're being honest, probably for a lot of us, family is like our greatest source of pain. And you're saying there's purpose there? No, that, like I have questions for God about my family. What? And I want to say something. If somebody in your family has forfeited their purpose to you in your family, that is not your fault. If somebody didn't treat you the way that you were supposed to be treated, didn't interact with you the way they should have, fell short, neglected their responsibility and their purpose to you, that is not your fault. We live in a broken world. We live in a sinful world, which means that we are navigating how to follow Jesus within a broken family. 
and sin ravages a lot of our families. But Psalm chapter 68 verse 6 says this, God actually sets the lonely in families. He leads the prisoners out with singing. As if to say, if you don't feel like you do have a family or you're in a family that you're asking God, why this one? Be encouraged that he places you in a new family. Your natural family, they might have let you down, but God's spiritual family, him as a father to you, he will never let you down. He will never forfeit his purpose. He will never be unfaithful to you. He will never abandon you. He will never mistreat you or hurt you. And we can take a big sigh of relief to say, man, God, if you're that faithful, then there will be a day where you will wipe away every tear from every eye and we will see you one day and we will come into your joy and you will be happy with us and we will be happy with you. The word for all of that simply in the scriptures is redemption. That God can redeem any part of your family. Even the most broken, isolated, sinful, destructive parts of your family. If not now, then absolutely then. And we set our hopes to say, God, you are a redemptive God and you are not intimidated by the circumstances of my family. You can redeem anything. And so we trust God that if it isn't redeemed now, then God, you will redeem it then. And if you're looking and you're saying, man, my family feels like way too heavy of a load, I would just kindly tell you then stop carrying them. They are not your responsibility to carry. There is a purpose that you have in your family, but the scriptures teach, cast your cares on him because he cares for you. Listen, you have a purpose in your family, but please resist the urge to think that you are what your family needs. You are not what your family needs. Oftentimes we think I'm the source of God's love for my family. No, you're not. You are a reflection of it. And if you think that you are the source of your family's change, you are the source of God's love for your family, you are misled. You are a reflection. You firstly have to receive his love. Then you can reflect his love to your family. Oftentimes we can hear this say, yeah, I got a purpose for my family. I have purpose. They need to listen to me. Some of you are sitting in this room. I'm going to send them this message now. Don't do it. Don't send them to YouTube. Don't send them the message. That's not the point. You will automatically then adopt this mentality to say, I am here to save my family. There's one savior. His name is Jesus. And if you think that you're responsible for saving and for changing your family, I'm kindly telling you, no, you are a vessel to be filled up and then poured out and then filled up again. If we misunderstand this, we're going to adopt this savior mentality. And we're going to go back to our families and think, yeah, I got what it takes. No, you don't. You didn't have what it takes to save you. You don't have what it takes to save them. There's a source that's greater than us. And it's Jesus. 
And now from that place, what we do is we say, God, you are the source. You are the savior. I choose to walk how you tell me to walk and to engage how you tell me to engage. And let me tell you this. If it is not healthy or responsible for you to have this type of relationship with your family, let me tell you something. It is healthy and responsible for you to pray for your family. If you're saying, man, I just don't know. I can't can't talk to them. It's unhealthy. It's not good. I need boundaries. Great. You can still pray for them. You can have a healthy relationship with God and your family to intercede on behalf of them, to fast for them, to pray for them, to encourage them from a distance. I'm not saying you have to go back and be best friends with your family. I'm saying you have to know you have a purpose in your family, and that purpose is not to be the Savior. It's to be a vessel for God to use for him to change your family. See, God values a natural family. And he also values a spiritual family. And so we value a spiritual family. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. (laughs) Have you um, ever actually read the Bible without your Christian goggles on? And just seen how wild it is? (laughs) You know what I'm talking about? So God like started the natural family with like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the children of a promise. He was going to work through this family, the Jews, and we find that. And then he has actually a plan for a spiritual family. The Jews in the New Testament, they couldn't understand this. Paul was like, no, that's the point. You guys were Jews. And they're like, wait, but the Gentiles are now saved. How does that happen? I thought we were the chosen people. Yes, you were the chosen people. You were just the first, not the only. There's actually somebody else God wanted to bring in. This changed their minds. They were like, what is going on? So God had a plan for a spiritual family all along. And it starts with this natural family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And when you look at the stories in the scriptures, you're just like, this is the craziest reality TV show there ever was. <laughs> Game of Thrones, what? <laughs> Kardashians, who? Like this, they don't compare to <laughs> Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They, they, like you ever just read the scriptures and you're like, they're crazy. Like you have, you have demons and you have angels and you have floods and you have impurity all around and sacrifices and profit wars. And in the first couple pages, the brother kills his only brother. And then you have like this giant guy who gets killed with a stone, but then you have a bunch of wars and a bunch of unfaithfulness. And you have like this one really strong guy with no self-control, but like you are reading, you're like, what is going on? This is the family? God, like, this is not, like, why them? And then you keep reading and you're like, God, but you're with them? Like, the whole way? Yeah. He's with them the whole way. Because you know what it teaches me? It teaches me that God does not bless people because they're perfect. He blesses people because they're his. And he says, that's the family that I choose. In your dysfunction, in your mess, in everything that you've screwed up, in all the ways that you've sinned against me, yeah, you're still mine. Come here, I still bless you. Listen, we look at Abraham, and yes, he's the father of the faith. Abraham was not the best husband. And we look at Isaac, he's the child of promise. Isaac was not the best dad. He pretty much split his family by choosing a favorite. Jacob wasn't the best at anything. (laughs) 
Jacob's just, you know what I mean? Like Jacob's just crazy. Jacob is like a usurper, a manipulator. He's just wild through and through and through. Even when his name gets changed, he's still not the best dad. He still has a favorite and his name is Joseph and it still causes a whole lot of drama. Like these are the guys, these are the girls, but God doesn't bless people because they're perfect. He blesses people because they're his. You look at the scriptures through and through and you're like, God, and here's the thing, you don't want God to bless you for your performance. Some of us have this idea, God blesses people based off their performance. No, he doesn't. (laughs) If God blessed you based off your performance, you would be a very unblessed person. (laughs) Because what is there to bless? I don't know what he would bless. Your good intentions that often fall short, what would he bless? God doesn't bless you based off of your performance. He blesses you based off of Jesus' performance. He blesses you based off of his faithfulness. He blesses you based off of his goodness. He says, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And if your family is screwed up and you don't know what to do, be encouraged. You're in really good company because God's not going to bless you because you're in a perfect family or because you have great ethics. He's not going to bless you because you have great morals and you didn't do anything wrong and you have this perfect nuclear family that's never had any drama and you actually like holidays with each other he's blessing you because you're his and people will mess up like you're going to find in church that they, that's going to continue throughout the rest of your life even with the christians even in the church if you're looking for a perfect place to belong i promise you this isn't it I promise you, at some point, not intentionally, I love you so much, but I probably will hurt you. I'm probably not going to lead you best. I'm probably going to make some mistakes. And if you're looking for a perfect church, I don't know where it is, but it's not this one. And some of us, you ever heard people say, response like, man, I love Jesus, but I just don't know about the church, man. Like, I love Jesus, I love him, but I just don't like the church. And I haven't lived so long, but I've lived long enough to realize it's very hard to be in relationship with somebody and hate what they love. You love Jesus, but you hate the church. See, like I love theater. Like that was my, that was my dream. I thought I was going to be an actor, like art in that way, that performative art to tell a story is I think some of the most compelling art in the world. I love it so much. Seeing plays, good art, good television, good movies, like that gets me going. I love it so much. And if you told me like, man, I hate theater, I'd be like, okay, whatever. Don't watch the play. (laughs) I love national parks and I want to go to all of them in my lifetime. All 63 national parks in the United States. That's my goal. I love nature. I think it's the most beautiful part of our country. And if you look at me, you're like, national parks are stupid. I'm like, well then don't go. (laughs) And I love the commanders. Like that is my team. I'm like a diehard commanders fan. And if you look at me, you're like, I don't like the commanders. I'm a Cowboys fan. I'll be like, well, you're not saved. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Calm down. I didn't say it. Pastor AJ did. I'm kidding. He told me to say it. But even if you don't like them, I'm like, okay, whatever. But if you look at me and you're like, man, I hate your brother. I'm like, square up. (laughs) All right. No, we don't need to talk any other words. Words are done. It's time to square up. Let me fight you right now. And in the same way that like, man, like there's a different kind of love that I have for my family than I have for nature, theater, and football. 
And God does not love you and his family like I love nature, theater, and football. He loves his spiritual family with an everlasting love that starts and begins with him. That is not based off of your performance or your character or your pedigree or your morality or your intentions. It is all based off of him. And if you look at him and you say, man, I love you, but I hate them. I think Jesus might say, square up (laughs) because I love them. I value them. I love the church. I love my bride. That's my spiritual family. I consider those my kids. And so I'm not really sure how you could love Jesus and hate the church. Because it's really hard to be in relationship with somebody when you hate something that they love. Paul teaches us this in Corinthians. And something we say here at Grace Covenant Church is, I'm not allowed to say that I don't need you. As a follower of Jesus, that's no longer in my vocabulary. Why? Because 1 Corinthians teaches that we are all parts of the body with Christ as the head. We now are the body of Christ. You and me. If you're in Christ, we are his body. And Paul teaches that if you are an eye, if you're a part of the body that's the eye, you're not allowed to say, I don't need the foot. If you're an arm, you're not allowed to say that I don't need the shoulder. You're not allowed to say, I don't need you. But there are a lot of Christians who go around saying, man, I love Jesus, but I don't like the church. I don't want to be part of organized religion. And here's the thing. If, uh, did you know that the first time that God said in the garden something wasn't good is when Adam was by himself? And if Adam, who lived in perfect unity with God in the Garden of Eden with everything right, God looked at him and he said, you shouldn't be alone. Then what makes you think that you who don't live in perfect unity with God, who aren't in the garden of Eden and who have to fight DC traffic every day, don't need a spiritual family. The first thing that wasn't good is that we were alone. And so God fixed that. Now we're saying, God, if you value spiritual family, then Lord, I value spiritual family. I'm choosing God to commit myself to spiritual family. In Romans chapter 12, verse 10, he actually teaches Paul that we ought to be devoted to one another in love. And oftentimes we say, man, I don't know about this church thing. I don't know about these Christians. I don't know about that. But here's my thing. God is not telling you to be devoted because he thinks it's a good idea. He's telling you to be devoted because you need to be devoted. And your devotion to me is connected to your devotion to God. We always say here, my purpose is connected to your purpose. And your purpose is connected to my purpose. Why? Because you're probably strong in areas where I'm weak. And I'm probably strong in areas where you're weak. We can't say that we don't need each other. In fact, we are taught that we ought to be devoted to each other in love. Did you know that there are 56 one another statements in the Bible? One another, as in love one another, bear with one another, forgive one another. 56 of those statements. And those 56 statements are God telling us how to interact with each other. And I just don't know how you can do those 56 one another's if you're by yourself. Did you know you cannot be obedient to God in 56 different ways if you are spiritually isolated? 
There are 56 things that you can't obey God in if you're spiritually isolated. It is impossible. You can't forgive one another. You can't bear with one another. You can't love one another. You can't serve one another. You can't accept one another. You can't be obedient to God 56 different ways if you're alone. He's saying you need each other. So much so that I'm going to make it a requirement for you to need each other. Be devoted to one another in love because our devotion to him is intimately connected to our devotion to each other. Hernan Cortez in 1519, as I close, was this Spaniard who was going towards the Americas at the time. And as he was going to fulfill his mission, he had 13 ships and he had 600 men that went along with him. As they're about to take this uh, um, um, uh, territory, what happened is that he shows up to the shore and there's this really interesting historical fact they did is that he gets to the shore and he tells all of his men one action. Here's what you have to do. Now that we're here, go and burn the ships. That's what Cortez did. He just burned the ships. As in, you approached this place, and now you have to get rid of your ability to escape. You see, burning the ships, I think, is an action that some of us need to take today when it comes to spiritual isolation. Not connected to a spiritual family. That burning the ships is a willful but unnecessary action you take to accomplish a specific goal. I am willfully and unnecessarily potentially burning the ships of spiritual isolation. And I am fully devoting myself to you in love today. I am making it impossible for myself to take any other way out. Why? Because devotion isn't necessary if withdrawal is always available. If there's always a plan B, I can find a different church. I can find different friends. I can find a different small group. I can find different people. I can find a different family. Even family is expendable nowadays. And if there's always a plan B, if there's always a way out, you might never be fully devoted to the purpose that God has for your life. And God might be saying to some of us today, burn the ships. You're here. Great. Now get rid of your ability to escape. Don't make it an option anymore. You've been playing on the fence for so long, thinking that it's going to protect you. Some of us, we do it because we're like, it's the safer way. If I don't commit myself, I can't be hurt as much. I can't be insecure as much. I won't have to deal with so much drama. Okay, maybe, but guess what? Also, you won't find deep relationships. You won't find deep community. You won't be deeply known. We prefer spiritual isolation because we think it's safer. But in actuality, you're giving up so many blessings that God is holding out for you. He's saying, burn the ships. Make it impossible for you to go back to a life of spiritual isolation ever again. In 1 John chapter 3, we find the most beautiful gift. Where John says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. That we should be called the children of God. 
and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. But beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet been appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Listen, if you are in Christ Jesus, beloved, you are children of God now. He has made you what you weren't before to what you are now. Before you weren't a child of God. The scripture teaches you were a child of disobedience. You were a son and a daughter of darkness. You were a child of wrath. Some of us think, oh, because I'm a human, I'm a child of God. That's not what the scripture teaches. It says that you are a child of God if you are in Christ Jesus. That's why he says, but beloved, now you are children of God. And so now if you are in Christ, guess what? He's your dad and you're his child. And you have an intimate relationship with him. And you have been made family with God. And God values family. So what does that mean? It means that we value family. And in the same way that the first salvation that ever happened was from a family with Noah. Guess what? There's going to be a last salvation. And God is faithful And even though the first salvation was of a family, guess what? The last salvation, when we all get called up into heaven, is also going to be of a family too. He's not coming back for religious people. He's not coming back for a moral uh, group of people. He's not coming back for ethical people with great intentions and who gave a lot of money to the church. He's not coming back for people who read their Bible in a year. He's not coming back for people who never cheated on their wives. He's not coming back for people who have a lot of integrity. He's not coming back for people who left the world in a better place than how they found it. He's coming back for his children. He's coming back for those who are his. And that's the only way that you're going to get the last salvation is if you're his. And he says, if anybody would believe, I would give them the right to become children of God. And that's why we value family, because God values family. He values the natural family. He values the spiritual family. And guess what? God is inviting a lot of us into family today. He's inviting you into a spiritual family. He's inviting you into a natural family in a different way. And if we would agree with him, you wouldn't believe the blessings that would come. The purpose that God would do. We at Grace Come Church value family because God values family. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we love you so much. God, this is all for you. You have made an effort. You've made a way for us to be sons and daughters of God. You're coming back for us one day. And God, in that place, we want to say, find us ready. We want to be known by you as sons and daughters. We want to know you as our father. If there's anybody in this room, I just want to pray for a specific group of people who right now have a burden for their natural family. You're saying, man, it's a heavy load. I don't know what to do. I'm at my wit's end. It's just more painful. It doesn't seem worth it anymore. And I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to ask you to stand. I don't want you to raise your hand. But if you would, 
I want to pray for you. I want you to pray with me for your natural family. And if that's you in this room and you want prayer for your natural family, would you mind just looking at me? If that's you. I see 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 you. Yeah, I see you. We're going to pray for the next 30 seconds. And I want you to pray with me for your natural family. Lord Jesus, you know them. You know them better than we do. You love them more than we do. You're pursuing them more than we are. And God, in the name of Jesus, would you soften their hearts right now? Would you make any rocky soil, thorny soil, good soil in the name of Jesus? Would you draw them, Lord, by your beauty and by your grace back to you? I'm praying right now, God, that prodigals in the name of Jesus would make their way home. That people who are far away from you, Jesus, would find their home in you. God, I'm asking that brothers and sisters, that mothers and daughters, that fathers and sons, Lord, would have a compelling conviction in their heart in the name of Jesus to reconcile. God, would you move them in a way that only you can move them? Would you convict them in a way that only you can? Would you protect them, Lord Jesus, as far away as they are and as crazy as they seem? God, you know them better than we know them. You care more about them more than we care about them. And you are wooing them to yourself. God, I'm asking for broken families to be whole in the name of Jesus. Would you place on our hearts, not just on theirs, creative ways to be a reflection of your love to them. God, that your mercies would be new every morning for them. That you would draw them by your spirit to yourself. God, because you value family, you care about them more than we do. And God, would you do something that we can't do with the pain that is in their heart that they are numbing with substances and with issues and with addictions be gone in the name of Jesus. And would they find life in the blood of Jesus right now? God, we're believing for a testimony. We're believing for wholeness and for reconciliation, for restoration and redemption to come back to families, God. That testimonies would be seen, not of our ability to bring a family whole, but of yours. Because you love our natural family. And we're asking for your grace and for your mercy over them in the name of Jesus.